Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 732 for June 11th, 2022. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Bart Bouchatz, and we're doing something we've never done before. We're doing an Ask Me Anything about security to Bart. This was a cool idea, Bart. At first, I thought, oh, that sounds too hard. But you uh, said you were up for the challenge. Well, yeah, because I guess my, my, my argument to you was twofold. I needed some time to do my accounts, which is going terribly, by the way. I hate my software. Uh, I'm going to have to rethink that before the end of the financial year. Um, but also, if I don't know the question in advance, then you get to hear the process of coming to an answer. So not just a prepackaged answer, but there's also the fact that I'm going to have to think about this because oh, everything. So... <laughs> You get to hear me reason and logic through things. Um, and the other thing is the bar is slightly different here. So when we do security bits, I have researched everything. And so I assume the audience rightly assume that I'm not talking about things I don't understand because I won't have wrote them into the show notes. Mm-hmm. Here, I'm going to tell you my level of confidence. Okay. So I am prepared to go further out ahead of my skis, but I will never do so secretly. Okay. All yeah. right. If if you think, you know, I don't know, this is my guess, you'll say that. <laughs> exactly. So uh, basically, that's that's the difference here. So I never say something I'm only 80% sure of on a normal show, but I will do it here, but not without telling you. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and kick this off. And we're going to start with BJ from Pennsylvania. And he asks... Why is multi-factor authentication more secure than just using a password? Or in other words, why would someone want to use multi-factor authentication protocols to make themselves more secure? Yeah, so there's... The biggest thing is that a single password is about the worst kind of authentication you can have because you invent a secret and you do your best to keep that secret and that's under your control, so arguably that's doable. But you're equally trusting the website you have no control of to keep the same secret. And that secret never changes. So if anyone ever intercepts it once, they have it forever. Right. So if that means that if there's something on your machine or if you sit down at a, at a you know, you're, you're flying somewhere and you're using a, a machine at a kiosk or something and it's got a keylogger on it, well, your password's gone. If the website ever has any sort of issue, the password's gone. If you've ever reused a password and someone else has lost it, the password's gone. So there's so many opportunities for it to go. Uh, you know, you install a browser plugin that turns out to be a bit dodgy, or you, you install a perfectly good plugin, and the guy sells it, because that's now a thing. Where you make a plugin that's popular, you get cranky about it because you're not making any money, so you sell it, and then it gets injected with adware and other rubbish. So it could just go AWOL in a million and one ways. And that's it. It's that one secret forever. Whereas with a multi-factor, the whole point is that it's changing. So if I eavesdrop on you doing a multi-factor authentication of any kind, you're not going to have enough information to do what's called a replay attack, which is to send the same credentials again and get in again. Right. You can't replay time. It only happens once. Because the two-factor authentication code is time-based. Or sequence-based. Or it's coming through a different medium, but it's never going to be a case that you can just replay the packets and have it work again, right? So some of them work off a counter. Like the YubiKeys, every time you hit the button, a counter ticks up, and the person on the other side is keeping track of a counter too, and they they allow a variance of like five or ten clicks or whatever. Uh, But again, it's not replay, right? Right, right. Or the most popular ones are the Google Authenticator style or OTP. And they're based off a 30 second window. You you take the current time 
round it to the nearest 30 seconds and run it through a private key. And that gives you the code. But that changes every time. And so someone, an eavesdropper, can't just replay, replay, replay. And there's also the fact that whatever is on the one-time password, because it's not permanent, if you lose it, you haven't really lost it. If you lose the 2FA... The instance of it, yes. Oh, okay. Oh, you're saying if if it gets stolen? If it gets stolen, well, it's temporary. It's ephemeral. It's like, okay, good for you. You've stolen something of no value. Good on you. Right, right. So it is, I mean, and some of the, like, multi-factor takes things above two-factor. So multi-factor can be even more powerful. Uh, For example, a lot of multi-factor is going to be based nowadays on your hardware. So if you're in a corporate environment, um, your your actual computer can be given a certificate issued by your company. And one of the factors can be, are you on a certifiably company device? Hmm. Okay. So it may actually be, are you on a company device? Are you on a company IP address? And do you know your password? That is a valid okay. multi-factor setup, right? And you now have a lot of flexibility in the policies, like a lot of flexibility. So multi-factor is even more powerful than two-factor. But it always comes down to the fact that if someone steals your password, that's just not enough. Okay. And passwords going missing is far too easy. No, I'm going to. So it's re- just not enough. Yeah, yeah. That makes that all makes sense. I'm going to rearrange the questions a little here. Uh, Steve okay. in Los Angeles asked a question that is a perfect follow-on for this one. Ooh. He says, "Is the new FIDO standard? Uh, sorry, start that again. Is the new FIDO standard for passkeys?" actually more secure than a password with second-factor authentication from an app? If so, why? Okay, so the wonderful thing, the most amazing thing about Fido is that there there is no secret to keep. You don't have to trust the website with a secret because they don't get a secret from you. So it's asymmetric encryption, which means that what you generate on your device, in your secure enclave if you're on on an Apple device, is... It's called a key pair, and they are a you together. They make up an identity, and you choose arbitrarily to keep one private, and the other one you arbitrarily choose to share. And anything you encrypt with one can only be decrypted with the other, and anything encrypted with the other can only be decrypted with the first one. So you keep one of them in your secure enclave behind your touch ID or your face ID, and you give the public key. To the website. And the way they use it is they use your public key to encrypt a challenge, which is some random gobbledygook, right? They just, they use a random number generator to make up some random junk. They encrypt with your public key, which is not secret. They give it to you and they ask you, so what did we encrypt with your public key? And the only person who can answer that question is the owner of the matching private key, i.e. you. Now, so I want I want to break in here. You. I I want to break in here. The secret is with you, but unlike a password, you don't actually Allison will not know what that is, right? It'll be in my secure enclave. I don't I don't go in and touch it and change it once a month to a different one or I, manipulate it in any way, do I? You, not, certainly not an Apple's implementation because that would be like, oh, we're going to save you hassle by giving you hassle. Uh, right. But it's, it is literally just a string of, uh, it's just a piece of hex. It is just a key. So okay. there's no reason, the reason you can synchronize it and stuff is because it really is just a, I don't know if it's 256 or 512 bits, but it's just going to be an amount of hex characters. Okay. So hypothetically, you could absolutely look at it and I'm sure one password's implementation will let you see. 
because that's the kind of people who wouldn't pass radar. Right. But it, but you can you can not worry your pretty little head about it at all. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. That is that is the key point. So unlike my password monkey care. that I'm going to give to uh, you know log into Google and and all of my accounts. It's not something that I know and would use and be touching and messing with it. And and they don't ever have it. And they don't ever have it, so they can't lose it. And again, we are protected from the replay attack because what you're asked is a random challenge. So the but, correct answer to today's random challenge is different. So if someone is eavesdropping on you, right, imagine that mm-hmm. there's there's a key, imagine there's a keylogger or something. Well, a keylogger isn't going to pick anything up because you're going to click your mouse. <laughs> uh, so the keylogger is a bad example. Imagine there is some sort of network sniffer that it can succeed in actually seeing the answer you sent back to the website. Okay. Every single time you log in, it's different. Because okay. they've sent you some random glop encrypted with your key. So even if you catch the answer once, that's it. It is useless. So how is that better, though, as to Steve's question, how is that better than 2FA from an uh, authenticator that, app? Okay, so in that sense, it's the same as 2FA, but it's... Uh, t- t- so Hassle-free? <laughs> hassle-free is the easiest answer, right? More human beings are going to do it. Mm-hmm. Because it's actually easier than a password. Okay. So 2FA gets, people push back like crazy from 2FA because it puts the burden on the human. And humans expect computers to relieve them of tedium, not create tedium. <laughs> and, in fact, you know, a, a great question to, to everyone in the audience, if you use 1Password or LastPass or whatever password manager you use, if it has a way of telling you how many accounts you have that have two-factor authentication available and you know it and you have not gone and enabled it, then that's how this is better. Mm. Right? Yeah. I think I finally cleared all mine out, but for the longest time I was like, ah, I don't want to go I'll do just, it. I'll just be honest, I haven't. Um, you haven't finished? I'm, I'm supposedly the security guy. There's some of them I just don't care about. It's like... The, the, yeah, I found myself going into sites and it, it, like the best one was when I went in and it said, no, you don't really have an account here anymore. It's, you know, pajamacity.com or something like that, you know. Yeah, and then I was able to happily delete. But uh, but just the fact that we who take this very seriously do that, that's why it's more secure because we'll actually do it because we don't have to do yeah. anything. I can, I can like, I, this is not a reflection on all mothers, but my mother in specific does not like technology. Mm-hmm. She tolerates it because it lets her talk to her kids and her grandkids. Mm-hmm. But it's tolerated. It's not like you who revel in the stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. She will use pass keys because it's easier. Right, right. Oh, you, here's another way I think it's, it would be more secure too. You talked, the last time or the previous time that we did Security Bits, you talked about mm-hmm. a way that people were being fished real time oh, for, their, for their two-factor codes, right? Yeah, now real time is an interesting one because real time is always real time gets by a replay attack. So real time is always problematic, but phishing as a, as a general rule is is not going to work. Only real time person in the middle or machine in the middle is recalling it now. So but I thought there was something no- where they get you on the phone and they're saying, "Okay, uh you're going to get a code. Uh let me know what that code is as soon as you get it." Actually, that's true. You're, they, there was a, there was a, and that was a real time thing. Yeah. So there are some real time things they could still do, but it would be more difficult because they can't know your details. They can't know your public key in advance. So they can't really do a fake fake. They'd have to wait for you to go 
So it'd have to wait for you to go to the site, mm-hmm. then be a machine in the middle at the point in time that you go to the site. This is with this is with Fido. This is with Fido. I'm just right. I'm trying to even figure out how they how conceivably. I think you would need to be so spectacularly hacked that they would have no need to get anywhere near your passkey. <laughs> okay. Actually, so the, the example I, would, I just want to be you. clear. When I was talking, I was talking mm. about that the two-factor auth codes were being mm. uh, stolen real, but real time. Yes, which you can do because if you have a password breach and it contains enough information to connect to you fish to you. a phone number or something, yeah. then they can actually, yeah, then they okay. can do it. And unfortunately, a lot of the breaches do contain enough information to connect it all together. And even if one breach doesn't contain everything, there's so many breaches, you're probably in more than one. Right, right, right. <laughs> so one of them will leak your phone number, and another one will leak your address, and another one will leak your insurance company, and another one will leak an account ID with your electricity company. Or right, right. Okay, well, good. Ugh. I think I think we came back. From, I, I like the way those two questions folded together because mm, that, nice. that got us to the right answer. Um, all right. Mr. Ed from the chat room, also known as Ed Tobias, he said I could also uh, refer to him as Your Highness when I asked him how oh. he wanted to be addressed. He said, <laughs> yeah, what a pain. Anyway, he said, I use Synology Quick Connect via the uh, DS file that's Disk Station file app on my iPhone. I can see all of the okay. files on my NAS from anywhere. How does this work when I don't have any port forwarding for this on my router, and is it safe? Yes, it is safe. It's a very old technique because... So your home network is like a one-way valve, mm-hmm. right? You can make a connection outbound, but nothing can make a connection inbound. Unless you asked for it. <laughs> oh, well, no, so that's you starting the connection, right? Yes, So you right. start the connection outbound, and the answers can come back to you. Right. So what the service like this will do is they will have a server in the cloud that your NAS makes an outbound connection to the, they call it a, a connection server or a rendezvous server, and the app will make a connection to the server in the cloud, and then the server in the cloud will basically plumb the two ends of the pipe together that it's been handed and step out of the conversation. Okay, so the information on his Synology through that that intermediate server in the cloud, the information on a Synology never goes to that to that server no, that is used that is used to, to create the connection between the two it's called nat traversal okay the technical term and so that server connects the two ends together who can then have a fully end-to-end encrypted conversation and if my understanding is correct in fact it the, not only is it end-to-end encrypted but the middle person can step out of the conversation once they have and that's the critical part the rendezvous i'm picturing yeah. the the old-fashioned um switchboard operators where somebody yeah. calls and they've got a, and then they've got a plug and they plug two plugs together to connect A to B so that the person can talk to each other, but then they're not in the conversation. Yeah, I was sort of picturing it like, you know, um, I don't know why Robin Hood came to him, but like, you know, you're both stuck in a tower and so you have a bow and arrow and you shoot a string out and someone picks up the two strings, ties them together and then steps away. <laughs> Until hijinks in- ensues and then th- this all falls apart. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah, that's I how like it works. that. Okay, very good. And it is safe. It is safe. Excellent. Well, you're you're batting a hundred percent so far. You've been Uh-oh. sound. Rel- well, you sound relatively certain of your answers. <laughs> All right, uh, James Carroll from ThorLaser.com asks: Can I share usernames and passwords with my wife or work colleagues safely via Apple Messages, previously known as iMessage, with no risk of interception unless the baddies somehow got their hands on our unlocked Apple devices or iCloud account? 
Okay, so strictly speaking, with every caveat in that question, the answer is yes. <laughs> it is safe. But I don't think it's a good idea <laughs> because they're not ephemeral. So those messages are going to be sitting in your inbox where you could leave your phone unlocked while you step out of the bathroom or something and they're just sitting there. So you would be better off using something that was end-to-end encrypted that had self-destructing messages. Okay. The end-to-end encryption is the important part. And iMessages definitely gives you the end-to-end encryption. So it is it is safe as it moves its way across the internet. And if you're both using iPhones, they're encrypted at rest, so it's safe when it arrives. But it would just be better if they were to evaporate rather than I see what you're forever. saying. And Apple holds the encryption keys, correct? So under a, if you consider a baddie the FBI... It is, okay, no. So, okay, well, the... Yes, but. So, hypothetically, Apple have the ability to add extra keys into conversations, but there is no evidence they have ever done so, and there is quite a bit of evidence that they have always refused to do such things, see the San Bernardino incident. Mm -hmm. So, while it is conceivable that someday they could be ordered to do so, it doesn't appear that has happened. Okay. Ever. It's it's kind of a trust thing, but it's it's not a big deal. Now, the, the way I get around it, James, and Bart, you can tell me if I'm being an idiot, is if Lindsay texts me in Telegram, hey, can I get your Netflix password? I will send the password in messages with no information around it. So the question was in one place and the answer was in another place. So sure, maybe somebody finds it in iMessage, but they don't know what it well, is. What is it? You know, maybe they start yeah. to get a flavor of what how I build my passwords or something like that, and that, you know, changes the entropy of it's, the answer. But uh, It's not a bad approach, because it's a very good approach when you're in a situation where you have limited options. So I would certainly have used that approach over the years, where I'm forced to share a password with someone who I don't have a physical connection with. And so I will often SMS the password and email the username. Right. Right. Okay. So completely separate media, mediums, whatever, you know, right. methods of transmission and no reference in one to the other. So you don't say what it is, right? You send an email saying, this is the username. You get a weird text message. That will be the password. And then you literally just SMS gobbledygook. Okay. Right? So, so you have you have done that. Well, that's I maybe not, not foolproof, but pretty good. It's decent. It's decent. And one password now have a password sharing service where you can have these things expire in X amount of days or after X amount of views, which is a very nice way of sharing a password. Right. They have to have one password to use it? I think they do. No, you do. Oh, they don't have no, to. No. They don't have to. That's the really? that's one of the beauties of it. Oh, so if I you're, did not know that. Yeah, so if you're operating some sort of help desk or something and you have to send someone a password, you can actually do it in such a way they can view it once and then the link stops working. Yeah, well, I knew that, but I thought they had to have one password to use it. No, no. Thankfully, no. The recipient doesn't. The sender does. Huh. As I recall, I just watched Don McAllister's uh, screencast online about uh, the new One Password Eight, and he he mm-hmm. demonstrated that. And I remember he showed it coming in an email, but I don't. Remember, it wasn't in plain text in the email. I'm trying to think how they. I'll have to go back and rewatch that. I'm, I don't understand they how they would see it. Features. Well, so the the feature that I'm talking about is where you get a link to a web page that they can load once. 
So it's a big, it's a cryptograph. You know the, you know the way you have a link that has the, you know, question mark ID equals gobbledygook, gobbledygook, sure. gobbledygook. Uh-huh. So it's one of those URLs uh-huh. that you would, you know, a cryptic URL, and you go to it, and then depending on how you've configured the share, it will be view once or view twice or available for a day or available for a week, and it is literally just the URL they go to. Okay. All right. So uh, James Carroll went on to say, and I think we just answered this, uh, also on that basis, are Apple messages any more or less secure than WhatsApp, Telegram, Signal, or Teams for messaging? Uh, almost. Okay. So what are those options there? Read me through the options slowly. WhatsApp, Telegram. WhatsApp uses, okay, so WhatsApp uses the Signal protocol, but like Apple managed the keys, Facebook managed the keys. So we have no evidence they have ever abused that privilege, mm-hmm. but hypothetically, they could. So the same as messages. Parentheses, Facebook. Okay, Telegram. Telegram, they have rolled their own encryption. So they're... But they don't hold the encryption keys in one place. They have it splintered between countries. Yes, but they have still broken the cardinal rule of cryptography is don't invent your own. Right. Because you don't know what you don't know. So I would say almost the same with the caveat that maybe their crypto is a little bit weaker because it isn't as battle-tested as something... But you aren't trusting a company like you are with Apple. Because and the way... Facebook. That's what I'm saying. Almost the same. Right. But but so Telegram rolled their own. So that's not Plus. good. That, but they also split the, the encryption amongst, I think it's five different countries. So five countries would have to agree to give up your information uh, to, to be able to put the, the encryption back together. Mm, no, but you're trust... Okay, you're still... The company manages the keys, so the company can change the software at any time. They could, yeah. But they're, yeah, that, right. But as far as being compelled, so Apple could, I think, can be compelled, I thought. It would depend on whether you're, like, it would be very difficult, because if I'm in Ireland and you're not, then a FISA court, you end up like Microsoft, where you end up Microsoft refusing to do stuff U.S. courts say because their Dublin data center is not in the U.S. So Microsoft got in a okay. lot of hot water for that, but they did win. Okay, all right. So that's so, complicated. So now we're we're still back to uh, the list. Uh, Signal. Signal the is most the secure, one right? that is above the others because you can manage your own keys. Okay. You don't have to, but you can. So if you manage your own keys, then you know it's good. Okay. So that is that is yeah that is the but you got to be a nerd to manage your own keys. So and most if, people use Signal don't. Okay, so then Signal would be on par with Apple Messages. Being open source, it makes it a little bit better, but okay. very similar, very similar. And then how about Teams? A Teams identical to Microsoft WhatsApp, etc. So uh, sorry, uh, Teams same as Messages, etc. Okay, okay, so all of these are pretty much the same for just sharing a password, but send the username and the password two separate ways and you're, you're better off. But, but the one thing that uh, Telegram and Signal have, I don't know if the others have, is this ephemeral, ephemeral thing where you can, you can have disappearing messages. I, yeah, you definitely have those on the, uh, I don't know if Teams does it because I've never tried. And I don't know if WhatsApp does. I don't know. It might. So, oh, WhatsApp does. I know WhatsApp does for a very funny reason. My brother hit the button by mistake, and he was very confused why the photograph he sent went away. But it was a lovely picture. Why did it get deleted? It's like, no, you did that. You made it so we could only view it once. Okay. Uh, Telegram has uh, two different ways of doing it. You can just delete it, but I don't know that that deletes it on the servers, but you can also do self-destructing messages. 
Yeah, but, which we've done for fun, right? The two of us have had a conversation that self-destructs after 10 seconds or whatever, just just because we can. Yeah, yeah, we did some testing. I don't remember which of us found the button, but one of us found the button. And we had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> All right, good. I think we've beaten that one into the ground. Linda from Silicon Valley is concerned Ooh. about doxing, where trolls ah. publish private information about you because of something you said online, say on Twitter. So she asks... Are there any anti-doxing tutorials or advice you can give to protect oneself other than just keeping one's mouth shut? I think it really does come down to keeping one's mouth shut. Um, if there is a magic answer to it, I have. it is a really well-kept secret. If someone has figured it out, they're keeping it bloody well secret because there are... It is really hard. Not If the internet decide they want to get their teeth into you, they really will. It... Yeah, it just has to be secretive. Yeah, yeah. I, I My answer to her directly was, if it was possible to keep people from doxing you, we wouldn't be seeing all the horrific attacks going on of uh, people who control election materials in the United States. That would not be happening right now if, if that guide was out there, if there was a way to, yeah. to stop it. So, yeah, yeah I guess... It came up as a conversation recently. Someone did an interview with the, the guy who does the Malicious... Not the Malicious Life podcast. The, he was interviewed on the Malicious Life podcast, but he's the guy who does Darknet Diaries. And he basically... There are no photographs of Jack Reesider. Hmm. But he did... You can't go back in time and do that. Right. He just basically never shared ever. Mm. Therefore, there's nothing to leak. Okay. But... Short of a time machine, yeah, no, if there was an easy answer, we, a lot of people would be very happy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Allison Sheridan from Los Angeles oh. asks, in regards to FIDO and the new passkey method of passwordless login, we're back on that topic again. If I have an existing password-based account on a website and I switch to a passkey, will the website remember the old password? Because if so, it would then be possible for a bad actor to log in using the old password. And in that same vein, what happens if you click on, I forget my password? Will every website have to know you've switched to passkeys and know to securely erase just your password? That is 100% up to the website to decide how they do authentication. And there are... So the most modern approach is not to have a one-to-one mapping of an account to an authentication mechanism. Hmm. So if you go into your GitHub, you can say, enable login with Google, enable login with Fido, say, because you can do that with an existing hardware Fido token. So you can enable multiple different types of authentication and turn them on or off at your discretion. So one would assume that you would never leave a password enabled on a site without 2FA. Okay. So when I when I turn on Fido and you don't, and we're both going to pajamanet.com and mm-hmm. I tell it I'm gonna use I'm gonna use passkeys now, I would actively hopefully have the a way to actively say don't use passwords anymore, but you'd still be able to go in and say you I'm still using my password, I haven't changed absolutely. to Fido. Okay. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Oh yeah, no, no. <clears throat> it's definitely not a case that the website is one or the other. It's that the website either will or won't support that authentication mechanism. And it, it's very, very normal now not to have an authentication mechanism, right? Almost every website has login with dot, dot, dot buttons, which mm. means they're already supporting multiple authentication mechanisms. A lot of. It is very <laughs> common to have multiple. I would say it's not uncommon. I, I see it, but I don't see it most of the time. 
even when you don't see it, it's often actually available on the website. Maybe, um, yeah. But so, so you're saying those those are there is only one active at a time, or depends. Try to go up to the website to decide. So on my GitHub account, I get to choose which are and which aren't active. So you could Some have websites. two active at the same time. Okay, but GitHub is is run by Microsoft, and before that, obviously, was a, a you know pretty nerdy capable site. I'm just trying to picture, uh, you know, I'm buying a cross stitch pattern from Sally's Cross Stitch. Well, okay, so you see, the danger point is actually the middle, because a site that's done by someone who's not really a computer person is probably using a product, mm. and a lot of the products oh. these days outsource authentication to a library and those okay. libraries support login with 20 different things okay. so a bit like stripe gives you the best credit card experience for websites run by complete amateurs because stripe have done all the hard work okay authentication is going that way too thanks okay. to things like login with apple login with facebook and all of those things so ironically the difficult bits in the middle the old a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing <laughs> the people who think they know what they're doing Kind of. But in this modern cloudy world where everything is software as a service, that is going away. I mean, I'm not saying it's gone because it isn't, but the trajectory is very much away from people inventing their own. And it's a case of, I'm going to just turn on these tick boxes here. Okay, and right, right. Uh, there's plugins for WordPress. I'm trying to remember the name. There's a real big one. Um, shoot. Anyway, there's one that you just you check, check a box and you put up pictures of the stuff you want to sell. Boom, you're done. You know, they handle everything in exactly. between. And that's where you'd be putting in credit card numbers and that would all be controlled, hopefully. So uh, it, it does sound like, <laughs> I just have this feeling it's going to be 2082 when banks actually do it. You know, the, the, Ironically, banks are usually slowest. For, yeah. Mainly because of technical debt. So I often feel as if my bank is a crude web interface around an old terminal app running on a <laughs> Vax Unix system. And someone, a friend of mine worked in a major Irish bank and said, well, there's a reason it feels like that. Because it is. Oh, no. <laughs> Why does my bank make me have an eight-character password? It was because the old Oracle system that's still running can't do anymore. It's like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so you put a really shiny skin... With lots of like drop shadows and modern stuff, and yeah, bootstrap it, and you're good. <laughs> technical debt, like the the banks have more technical debt than financial debt. I think. Yeah, maybe that's a reason to look for new modern banks where the I I use a bank that mm. doesn't have a, any kind of physical presence, and they just sort of came up out of nowhere, and they uh, they I they do a lot of it better. A lot of stuff is real automatic, so. <sighs> There's a lot to be said for Greenfield. Um, if, if you want to make a computer consultant happy, call them in for a consultation and say the words, imagine you were starting fresh. What would you do? <laughs> and their eyes light up and they can actually do best practices. Because everywhere else they go into, they have to adapt an existing system. Okay, so and we wrote this in COBOL. <laughs> exactly. The amount of COBOL people who made a fortune around about Y2K. Right, because right. Because there was so much COBOL still in use. Uh, it is unfortunately still the common business-oriented language. <laughs> oh, is that what that stands for? Okay. Yeah. All right. So one of my favorite emails we got in the Ask Me Anything was uh, from someone who is a happy Windows user. And I just love that. Uh, do I believe them? Yes. <laughs> no, stop it, Bart. Don't be mean. I'm being facetious. I am not being serious. 
No, but what I wanted to say, and now you've ruined it, is that we, oh, with sorry. our with our ever so slight Apple bias, uh, we we do try to to represent all sides and not be not mm. be snotty. Even the part was just snotty. So I'm glad we have a happy Windows user listening. Anyway, uh, happy Windows user says hello, Allison Bart. Thank you for your show and your enthusiasm. As an exclusive Windows desktop user, I noticed within Internet Explorer's history tab. It keeps logs of all my personal files I access on my PC. They sent a screenshot. They said, I realize Microsoft will end Internet Explorer this year. However, tracking my accessed files also shows up in the app data folder. Another screenshot. The file path is this PC. Oh, they gave a long file path to it. So the dumb question is, is this part of the telemetry Microsoft collects on its users? If so, how can I prevent it? Typically, I don't use my PC with a Windows account, but as a user account. I haven't upgraded to Windows 11 yet. However, I know that Microsoft will require a Windows account for PC use. So how can I block Microsoft from knowing which files I access on my PC? Okay, so the... So I did a bit... Of, this is the one question you gave me in advance. Yeah, I wanted you to see the screenshots. Yeah, so... In this case, I am happy to say that I did a bit of reading on exactly what is and isn't in telemetry. And the, the, the short answer is, no, it's not telemetry. Good. It is local data. So that folder, which is the uh, app data folder, mm-hmm. that is the Windows equivalent for our Apple listeners of the library folder inside your user account. Okay. It is where your apps keep your data on your computer. Okay. So it is your Internet Explorer keeping your history for you on your computer. Okay. Okay. Which is fine. That's helpful. That's useful. The telemetry is a thing and it is sent to Microsoft, but it is, its job in life is to tell Microsoft when your computer runs out of RAM, when your apps crash, when you're having a bad experience. Now, there is a reason there's a privacy concern. When your app crashes, it's going to dump what's in memory at the point in time it ran against a brick wall. And depending on where the slider for telemetry is set, it either will or won't share the crash data with Microsoft. It is hypothetically possible for crash data to contain sensitive information. If there's a piece of RAM that happened to contain your social security number in the wrong place at the wrong time to be caught in the dump, then it will go to Microsoft. So hypothetically, it is absolutely possible to leak data, but you want to be A, quite unlucky, and it will be very random, isolated chunks of information. But Microsoft have a slider where they, you can, it's a slider with f- three levels for humans and a fourth level if you're an enterprise customer. Enterprise customers get to set telemetry to like, very, very nearly zero. The only thing they can't turn off is security reporting. So Windows will tell Microsoft when people run out-of-date versions of things so that Microsoft know when there's an exploit, is this a calamitous earth-ending thing because this patch hasn't been applied on 80% of computers in the world? Hmm. Or is it okay? So no one can turn that off without Well, you can actually just turn the whole service off and then it doesn't work by default because you've disabled the service. Hmm. Um, But if you don't disable the service, the lowest level available is security information only, and that is only available to enterprise customers. But the level above that is available to everyone, and that shares almost nothing with Microsoft. It doesn't tell them what files you have opened. It doesn't tell them what websites you've been to, but it will tell them if you're starting to run out of RAM. 
Where is this slider you're talking about? Is it a control panel or something? It is somewhere in the control panel. I will be darned if I can tell you the exact directions. It, I, that's I fine, did but send just, you a link yeah. to pass on to the listener, which shows how to control all these things. But what I find about the Microsoft control panel is that I can never find the same route to the same piece of information <laughs> twice. I do eventually get there again, but it's never by the same way. I th- And I can never get back. <laughs> I think that that actually comes from uh, the fact that you can get there more than one way. So the the first way mm-hmm. you got there very well might be there, but it it's if you find it a different way, you'll think that they just moved it in the in the time in between. But I think they give you a Quite lot possible. of paths, and so you think it isn't isn't there. So is this thing called telemetry? Is that yes. what they're talking about? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, and it, well, I think it's officially called performance telemetry or something. There's another word in front of the word telemetry, but it's basically how terrible of an a user experience are people having? So on the Mac, we don't have that kind of control. Uh, no, we do. Apple asks you when you start your Mac after an OS whether you would like to share crash data and uh, performance data with Apple. Right, but so we don't have a you, slider. No, we have a yes-no. Either we are sharing our performance information. We have two options. And I think apps, but app base, app by app, it asks you too. Uh, not seen... on the Mac. So on the Mac, what it asks you is, the first question is, do you want to share performance information with Apple is the first question you get on a new Mac. So when you do a clean install, mm-hmm. you get the little two people handshaking icon. And the first thing Apple asks you is, can we, can, will you share information with us, Apple? And the second question is, will we send crash data to the app's developer? Right. But I'm pretty so sure I get it options. on apps as well. I've had apps say, do you want to share crash data with me? Okay, so that's... Purely an internal within the app. Right, right. Crash and performance data. I've seen it on on apps often. Yeah, so that's the apps installing analytics within themselves. Yeah. So that's that's app code. So that's not an OS feature. That's an app feature. Okay. So happy Windows desktop user does not have to worry about uh, this information uh, getting leaked because it's a it's local information that they've got in this uh, app data folder. Yeah, right? so the app data folder is where your local apps keep your data. Can I ask for a dumb, dumb question just for my no, own no sake here? Uh, what I don't know what it means to have a Windows account versus a user account. What are, do you know what they're talking about there? I presu- okay, so it is possible to have a cloud based account to log into your Windows. So it'd be it's the equivalent of logging into your Mac with an iCloud account instead oh, of a local account. Okay. Okay. All right. So that would allow syncing between computers and things like that, where they have the same experience everywhere. Yeah, so your preferences would be in the cloud. And then every Windows machine you logged into with that cloud-based account would get your preferences pulled down. Okay. Okay. It has advantages. Um, right. Well, I'm glad we. OneDrive and stuff. I'm glad work. this is the one that we did uh, let you do a little bit of homework on because it sounds like this was a little more in depth than than some of the others. But that that I learned a lot. There we go. All right. Uh, NASA Nut asks, I have some questions regarding a VPN. I have a Synology NAS, which offers the ability to set up a VPN on it. Assuming my goals for using a VPN are more privacy related, does setting up the VPN on my NAS provide any privacy anonymity for my ISP? Or since my NAS is on the network and my ISP knows my IP address, will my ISP still be able to see locations that I'm connecting to? Are there any pros, cons regarding using VPN on my NAS located within my home network? It would depend on how you set it up, right? So would, 
so you install the VPN on your NAS. Will you then use that VPN on your NAS to connect to a VPN provider on the cloud and route all of your network traffic from your LAN to your NAS through the VPN out to the internet? Or would it be the case that the VPN server on the NAS is acting as a VPN endpoint that you would use when you're out and about? That's what I thought they were for. Well, it depends. You could use it either way, right? It's VPNs are amazingly flexible things. They're just pipes. So the question, can a VPN do X? The answer is always yes, because it depends on how you plumb it in. So I cut you off a little bit, and and I might have cut you off from somebody understanding who didn't know the end of your sentence. So one of the ways, or the what I was trying to say, the way that I understand people use VPNs on their NAS is instead of paying PIA, for example, for a VPN service, you would VPN into your house and then go from there out to the network. So then you're you're essentially as though you're at home and you're going through your firewall. Yeah, so it all depends on who, it all depends on the problem to be solved. So if the problem to be solved is, I spend a lot of time in airports, hotels, coffee shops, and I don't trust airports, hotels, or coffee shops, and you shouldn't, then having a VPN endpoint on your local network at home, assuming you trust your ISP, is way better for your privacy. Okay. Because you're not trusting any of those people sharing your coffee shop, airport, or hotel. You're teleporting your traffic securely as far as your house, and then you're going on the internet from your house. And so that definitely solves a real problem. Not just privacy, but but security as well. Correct, because it's a completely encrypted tunnel. Right. Between you and the coffee shop and your house. Right. So everything is completely encrypted between you and the house, and then it goes onto the internet. But when it leaves your house... Your ISP still knows where you went. Exactly. In that so that doesn't help. That doesn't help from protecting you from your ISP. So the only way you could help from from your ISP would be that you have the VPN endpoint sitting on the NAS box, and then from there you connect that NAS endpoint on the VPN to a service in the cloud. And now you've set up a tunnel between your house and the cloud, and then everything you do in your house goes through the tunnel and then joins the internet from the cloud instead of from your house and now you have privacy from your ISP but it only works while you're at home well so you solve the different problem hold that thought so mm-hmm. in that case the advantage of doing it on your NAS versus just doing PIA is you don't have to put the software on all the different uh, devices yes. you're only going because you are you do no 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 that's the advantage so I was agreeing with you that that was the advantage so because the VPN is running on the NAS, that is somehow causing all internet traffic from my house. You have to do a bit more work. So okay. you have to tell your traffic that that VPN endpoint is your router. Tell your so the normal place to put a VPN in your house would be on your router. Not so on your NAS. Running, not on your NAS, unless you have the NAS configured to be your router. And the NAS, I mean, the NAS can install anything, right? You can run... You could probably install a DHCP server on your NAS and then you could have it act as your router very easily, right? These things can do almost anything, these NASs. Right? Right. They're, they're just servers. Right. They're servers with not a lot of CPU, not a lot of RAM, and a heck of a lot of hard disk. Right. But they are servers. They're on, a lot of them run Linux. Um, so you absolutely could set it up. So basically, the only reason that your laptop knows to go to the internet through your router is because your router's DHCP server told it so. Right. So you could configure your router's DHCP server to tell everyone to use the NAS, mm-hmm. or you could make the NAS be your DHCP server. 
Either way, you would have to do a little bit of work so that whoever is sending out the DHCP answers in your house is telling everyone in your house, by everyone I mean every computer, is telling every computer in your house that the default gateway is the correct term, is the VPN endpoint. Okay, so let's say I knew how to do that. So I'm not just it's putting I'm not just putting the VPN software on my NAS. I have to tell it to be the router. So now it, now it's routing my traffic. So I don't need to run the clients on all the devices inside my house. Correct. So but, your devices just talk to the network, and they have no idea that it's actually being handed to this NAS and run through the tunnel. So it's great. You would have to do that for either scenario, whether you're at the coffee shop or whether you're in the house. You would still have to tell it to do the DHCP dance, wouldn't you? Well, no. So if you have it the other way around, then you would turn on your VPN on the laptop using a client as if you were turning it on to connect to PIA or whatever. Wait, wait, hang on. Where, Where are we? Are we outside the house or inside the house now? So for the first scenario where you're running it as the server is in your house and you're in the coffee shop. Right then you will have an open VPN client pointing at the public IP address of your house as the server. Mm-hmm. And so you will turn on that client just like you would turn on the client from NordVPN or PIA or whoever. Okay. So my my I've got PIA running on my iPad. I, it, it connects into my house as the endpoint and somehow the NAS takes over even though the NAS is not the router. Right, because in that case, there's no routing needed because it is the endpoint. So it just basically then talks to the internet like everything else in your network does, i.e. it goes out through your router like everything else does. Okay, so I'm actually connecting to the internal IP address of my of my router. Okay, all right. Yeah, now you'd have to do some port forwarding for that to work, <laughs> right? It sounds really hard. <laughs> uh, to be honest, it's, it's not for the faint-hearted. Okay. I mean, plenty of our listeners will have great fun with such a nerdery. Right. But it is very much in the nerdery category. Right, right. Okay, so now I think I understand it from the outside, but from the inside, then I have to tell, I have to somehow teach my NAS to be the router and maybe like a secondary router versus my regular router, or do I have to turn off the the routing from the first one, the main real router? There are many options. There are many ways to square that circle. The point being that every computer on your network will receive a DHCP answer from someone telling it which IP address on this network is responsible for connecting me to the internet. It's called the default gateway. Okay. And by default, your router will tell everyone that it is your default gateway. Okay. Okay. But you can tell your router to tell everyone that the NAS is your default gateway. Okay. Okay. So to to answer, now that we've gone through all this explanation, let me see if I can answer John's question. Tell me if I get this wrong. As far as privacy and keeping your traffic from your ISP, if you're in a coffee shop and you use your NAS as a, as a VPN uh, endpoint and you tunnel into your house and then you go back out like a normal person as though you were in your house, then no, you haven't hidden any traffic, your traffic at all. Correct. But Correct. if you set up your VPN server on your NAS to be the gateway and then connect to somebody else's uh, VPN server like PIA, then those two are talking to each other. That traffic is tunneled and your ISP doesn't know where you went. Other, it knows you exactly. went. It probably knows that you went to PIA, but that's all it knows. Correct. It knows that some traffic it can't see went from your house to that to wherever the VPN server is. Right. 
but it doesn't know what the traffic is. It just knows that it went there. So for the coffee shop example, if you had the VPN, if you had the VPN server set up as the gateway in your house and it was talking to an external VPN provider like PIA, then the traffic you did from the coffee shop into your house and then went back out, then that would be private. Correct, because okay. you would have two private tunnels. Yeah, absolutely, that would work. So okay. basically, if you want to do, the, if you need to have two hops of privacy, you need two VPNs. Yep. Okay. So you aren't saving any money. No. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. Well, I think we have enough time to squeeze in one more question okay. from Allison in Los Angeles. She asks another question oh. because she can. <laughs> I was just going to say, I wonder if she has the host here. <laughs> uh, so my question was, is it too soon to start telling our non-technical friends and family about our passwordless future? So I'm not worried about getting them overly excited. I'm, I am worried, though, that they're going to hear about this and they're going to think it's a scam. So I was thinking of just slowly starting to introduce the idea to them, saying, if you hear about this, this is going to be real. You don't have to do anything yet, but it's going to be wonderful and it's not fake and it sounds too good to be true. Or maybe it is too soon. Maybe it's not mainstream enough yet in the muggle news. No, I think now is probably the right time to say that this time next year, I'll be having a conversation with you about your passwords. In the meantime, there's a beta out already that the really, really, really nerdy people are using. I'm not one of those, but come mm. September, I'll be using it. I'll be testing it. I'll have all the real world experience. And then by next summer, I think it's time for you to move. And I would put idea. the word happy in front of it. I'll be having a oh, happy yeah. conversation with you. I'm thinking about Steve's dad because he is so security conscious. It's just awesome. Uh, and he, he calls us about everything. Anything weird happens that, that this man will never get fished. I'm convinced of it. And my mother-in-law never will either because they are so careful. They call us instantly. Excellent. And we always pat them on their little pumpkin heads and say, good job. You know, you're doing it right. And they always apologize profusely for these, these uh, you know, what is it? False positives. Right. And we always give them positive reinforcement, go, no, keep it up. We want you to do this. And I think it would be good to let them know this happy future is coming. You're not going to have to worry about this as much as you do right now, but don't worry about it right now. I think it's good. And also a lot of people don't like to have change sneak up on them. Yeah. Like a little yeah. bit of time to prepare. Yeah. Yeah. Mentally get ready for knowing that. And what I like to say to, because uh, I have... Sorry to throw my mom under the bus again, but it's true. <laughs> I do I do here. like that you say this singular example. Yeah, I mean, my mom is my mom and she is, she's wonderful, but she's not techie. Mm -hmm. And she always apologizes for asking me. And I say to her, mom, you ask me a hundred times and I give you a two second answer. Just imagine if you didn't and I had to spend a week fixing everything. Right. Like, oh... I guess I can do this quite a few times. Like, yes, you can. Yes, <laughs> the you area can. under the curve. The other thing I always tell people is think about all the stuff I don't know that you know. You know, I have literally never hung a picture because I'm just afraid I'll do it wrong and I'll put holes in the wall and then I won't know what to do about that. I mean, I don't know how to. I don't know how to grow roses. Uh, you know, I, I understand there's this stuff called fertilizer and people talk about nitrogen and stuff, but I don't know anything about that. I have to ask other people to help me. I, there's so many things I don't know how to do, but technology has so permeated our world that people feel like they should know all of this and they feel like they're idiots when they don't. And and that's I keep yeah. trying to dissuade that. The example I always use is a car. It's like, we all drive. 
do you know how your car works? Because I don't. <laughs> I'm, I get a man and he comes and he does things. <laughs> I don't feel bad about that. So why should you feel bad about the computer? Right. Someday you'll have a woman come fix your car. No, I do, I do really like your your, happened, yeah. your caveat, though, about uh, about saying just your mother is who you're talking about. I was just reading a tweet where someone was, or a, an article, in, uh, and they were saying, uh, oh, well, you know, elderly people. It's like, oh, I'm just going to, if I knew oh. you personally, I would drive over to your house and kick you in the shins. <laughs> okay. And, and I'm going to join in here. I learned about computers from my grandfather. There we go. Not my dad. From my grandfather. When he was retired, he bought the first computer in our family because when he was a driver, he used to drive lorries for the Cincinnati Brewery, Mm -hmm. and they had a a computer the size of a room, and he said, when I retire, I want a computer and it will be tiny. And everyone laughed at him. (laughs) And he bought an Amstrad PC and loaded it over everyone. I told you. I told you. I love it. Well, who do you think uh, of all of my family, everybody who is younger than me, including my husband, who do you think they turn to? They turn to me. I'm the oldest person in this family, and I am the one they go to. And I'm a girl. There you go. (laughs) Stereotypes. (laughs) Who needs them? Exactly. Well, I, that actually winds us up. That that we got the perfect amount of questions. I was afraid we'd have either too many or too few, and I think we got just about the right amount because we uh, came in at just under an hour. So this this was really Fantastic. fun. I enjoyed this. So did I actually. I, I was mildly worried, but no, this was really good. It was. It's nice to. Yes, it's kind of a nice. Uh, you know, life is like a box of chocolates. I don't know what I'm going to get, but it was fun. <laughs> I like it. Well, we can count on the NoSilicast ways to come through for us and give us uh, good things to ask about. It was very definitely Fido-related quite a bit, but uh, that's, the, that's the fun right now. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine why that was in people's minds. Anyway, um, regardless of the fact that it's an unusual show, and technically it's my catchphrase from another show, but I still think I should end by reminding everyone to stay patched so you stay secure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad-supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something, or maybe you were just entertained, consider contributing to the Podfeet podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says support the show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the NoSilla Castaways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Maybe you want to talk to other NoSilla Castaways. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.